We dressed my mother's corpse in a red blazer and black leather skirt. Hey fellow mortals, I'm Lauren, palliative care doctor, motherless daughter, longtime griever, and believer that having a healthy relationship with death is the secret to living a more fulfilled life. And yes, I just made reference to my dead mother's corpse. And yes, we're going to be talking a lot more about that today on part two of the inaugural episode of Talk Dying to Me. To get caught up to speed on what brings us to the topic of my mother's dead body, I recommend you check out part one of this episode, which can be found on our website, www.talkdyingtome.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. And I remember thinking that she looked a lot like Snow White, which is a movie that I hated. (laughs) Snow White didn't wear a red blazer and black leather skirt, but if that story was set in 1996, she probably would have. And continue to hate because that's what I associate it with. Like Snow White lays in the coffin waiting for the kiss, right? So it was like the dark dark hair right kind of curly her skin was kind of light the red lips and the makeup i remember all of that she looked really good like it wasn't traumatic for me to see her i'm probably happy that i did i don't know what i don't know what it would have been like if i didn't get to see her i remember it like it was yesterday i was holding on to someone's hand i'm still not sure who it belonged to and they led me up the long aisle of the funeral parlor to see my mother's corpse. She did look very much like Snow White, as my sister pointed out. But beyond her looking beautiful, as usual, it was evident that she wasn't there. And this, this was just her body. An empty vessel. The thing that made her 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 spirit, her soul, whatever it was, was so evidently absent. And if it wasn't there, then where did it go? And if it wasn't there, then surely it wouldn't be buried away with her corpse. Maybe what made her her wasn't dead after all. And I just remember, it felt like a long time, I'm sure it wasn't, but I felt like I just stared at her for a really long time. And this thought kind of crept into my head, which never probably is something that I ever would have thought before, because I wasn't a kid who was constantly afraid of anyone dying, right? Or anyone being in danger necessarily. But I remember staring at her and thinking to myself that nothing else can happen to her now. So it was almost like soulless. I wasn't crying anymore. I just had this vision of her being fine. And it felt fine. (laughs) Like it was a peaceful kind of moment, which is weird to be 10 and to, I guess, have that. I had a similar moment driving to the funeral home in the back seat of my dad's best friend's SUV. I remember it distinctly. I wished upon a star, which sounds entirely corny and like something straight out of a bad Hallmark movie, but that's what I did, and that's what highly dramatic six-year-olds who watch too much TV do. I wished on a star that no matter where my mom was, be it heaven or some other place that people go when they die, that no matter where she was in that moment, she was okay. 
that she was safe, that she wasn't in pain, that she was happy. And for a brief moment, all of my anxiety dissipated. My fears of what the future might or might not look like vanished. And I was fine. It was fine. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that she was okay. And that even though this was painful beyond measure, I was going to be okay too. It's funny though that both of us, and maybe that's just because it was conditioned in us from church and from things we were told after she died, but it's funny that we both didn't feel like she was gone. Yeah. Because I really didn't. I can't logically wrap my head around these experiences that both my sister and I had on that night, the night we visited our dead mother's body. If I go back to med school and consider the basic principles of childhood development, I can't explain it, how these moments of peace were experienced amidst the chaos of our lives being unraveled. It would be highly unusual for an average six-year-old, and I was an average six-year-old, to be able to comprehend this situation in a way that would allow me to believe in fate to the extent that I knew I would be okay. To be empathic enough to consider something beyond my immediate feelings and emotions. To be worried about my mother's well-being purely for the sake of her well-being and not for my own. That's not how six-year-olds are conditioned to navigate the world. But I know it happened. I know what I felt. My sister knows what she felt, too, and yes, it was unusual and odd, but so real and so utterly beautiful and peaceful. I used to think that it was so cruel, that the one moment in my life where I craved and needed the physical comfort of my mother more than ever, she was lying lifeless in a wooden box. Her body was right there in front of me, but it couldn't hold me. It couldn't stroke my forehead or get me a snack and put on my favorite show. It was highly confusing and excruciating at the time. I mean, let's face it, that's just about the cruelest scenario for a little kid. But I'm glad I saw it. It helped me recognize that her body was just that, a body. And that her spirit had gone somewhere else. Someplace unknowable, but somewhere. And I didn't know it then, but in hearing my sister's experience and reflecting on my own experience all of these years later, I know it now. My mom was with us that night. We felt her. She brought us peace, even for just a brief and subtle moment. She was with us. She was right there, grieving along with us. Not gonna lie. Growing up without a mom, it totally sucked. Don't get me wrong, we had a lot of really amazing motherly people in our lives. There were family friends and neighbors and aunts and eventually our stepmom, who's amazing. But as awesome as all of these people were, they weren't our mom. No one could fill that space. And I can't even put into words how empty it felt. And then there was the whole issue of being the only kid in class whose mom had died, and the awkwardness that came with that. 
One of the big things I think in the like immediate months after as a kid who doesn't have a mom is other kids don't know how to treat you and they don't know what they're allowed to talk about or what others should be allowed to talk about. Sometimes you feel ostracized. I mean, at the time, especially things have changed, but you know, don't forget to ask your mom to pack a lunch tomorrow because we're going on a field trip. And just every time that the phrase mom is applied to, you know, (laughs) to a class or to a, you feel like everyone's staring at you, or at least that's how I felt. I remember my best friend, she was, <laughs> she stood up for me for my entire childhood. I remember one of Fiona's friends saying something about like a mom or whatever. And she was, I could hear her. She was making it so that I couldn't hear. But she said something like, don't talk about your mother. Like <laughs> Her mother just died. I remember saying like, Fiona, it's or thinking like, it's okay. Like, I don't I know why like throughout it, all of this, I haven't cried. But it's like thinking of little Fiona Payne standing up for you is making you want a ball. <laughs> but yeah, no, she always stood up for me. <laughs> it's the best. God bless feisty childhood friends like Fiona Payne. May we know them. May we be them. May we raise them. Other memories, I guess, of growing up with a mom is I just didn't talk about it for a very long time, nor did I want to talk about it. I don't think that I was, you know... I don't think it was to my detriment necessarily. I think a lot of people around me were scared that I wasn't talking about it. I remember hating getting cornered in a car by somebody. Like Annie Lois? (laughs) Or dad even sometimes. I hated it. I was nervous. I didn't want to talk about it. And I know that they were just trying to help, but I just held lots in. It's just what I did. Yeah. I also think you don't let yourself feel more than you can handle. Yeah, no, you're probably absolutely right. That I think that's always been my way to cope. It just like seeps out insidiously for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Okay, my theory around overwhelming grief and loss is that your mind and body work together to only let in as much pain as you can handle at any given moment. If all of the pain that could be experienced happened in the early days of the loss of a loved one, we probably would like spontaneously combust. In the case of my sister and myself, we simply could not talk about it because we didn't have the capacity to even begin to process the complex emotions we were feeling. And if we let it all out, it would have nowhere to go. The time it takes to grieve is not something you can calculate. It's a long, drawn-out process, one that lasts a lifetime. The pain of it all constantly drips into your life at different rates, depending on your capacity to deal with it. It's like a leaky faucet. And at first, you would give your right arm just to turn it off. But eventually, it becomes part of you a familiar ache in your heart, and you can't imagine life without it. Maybe it's the wrong advice because I am not trained all that I have as experiential, you know, education. But I would just, you know, let them know that you're there, which I feel like the people around us did. But yeah, I definitely wouldn't push because I really think everybody deals with it in a totally different way. And 
I personally feel like how I dealt with it, which as you say, I think was just dealing, letting out as much as I could handle at the time until maybe I grew the capacity to be able to deal with it on a broader scale, which probably came many years after it actually happened. There was a period where I was growing up where it felt like such a huge part of my identity that it felt like I had to like say it. I'd be like, hi, I'm Lauren. And my mom died. I would try to work it into the conversation. So I think I always dreaded that part of the conversation coming up because people always feel bad. Yeah. You know, when they'll say, oh, what does your mom do? Or what does your mom live? I remember that particularly in university, most of the kids in high school knew what had happened. But in university, nobody really knew me. And so eventually those things would come up. And I would have to say, oh, my mom passed away when I'm 10. But I think I would immediately follow it with, oh, it's, o- it's okay. Please don't say, like, sorry for your loss yeah. or my deepest sympathies. Because really, it's And that's also of kind of a way to, like, nip it in the bud and be yeah. like, no, you know, and let's move on. Exactly. People just really don't know how to exist in the same space as people who are suffering. In general, people tend to be afraid of sad or difficult emotions. They get uncomfortable. They don't know what to say. Things get awkward. And that energy is so palpable, and it makes the grieving person feel even more awful. This is kind of part of my mandate here, guys. It's time to wake up a bit to our own mortality and the mortality of those around us. We are all going to be faced with hard stuff sooner or later. Grief and loss are just a few of the strands that weave us together universally. And the sooner we realize and appreciate that, the better we'll be able to support each other through the inevitable hard stuff. Death is dealt with as kind of like with reverence and it's somber and it's yeah. serious and and it probably is those things but it's lots of other things too <laughs> yeah totally she's right it is a lot of other things it's the warm sad feeling you get knowing your mother's friends gather by her grave every year and toast champagne and leave a glass on her tombstone It's looking forward to the annual Christmas letter you get from her university roommate, telling you about her past boyfriends and wild parties, which make you laugh so hard you cry and cry so hard you laugh. It's stumbling upon a box of poetry she wrote years after her death at the exact moment you need a little more of her in your life. It's stopping to look at the stars on a winter night because you know she did that too, and she'd want you to take it all in. It's your half-sister, who is kind and loving and brings so much joy to this world, and yet whose life was born out of your greatest tragedy. It's looking at life with wonder, knowing you'll never comprehend the mystic nature of a loved one's passing on. Your mind and heart will be torn by the things that could never happen because she died and the things that could only happen because she did. Yes, death is sad and grief sucks, but they aren't just those things. Grief is too complex to classify as just one terrible thing. Grief is layered. It's not just good or bad. It may have good and bad parts to it, but the experience of loss is dynamic and multidimensional. Our grief can be a master teacher, 
And whether we're aware of it or not, it guides us through life in a way that is different had we not been struck by it. I think that I'm a much more thoughtful person. And I don't mean thoughtful as in gestures, but just I think about things a lot more. My place in the universe, my purpose, why I'm here, being resilient that I can get through things, all because of what happened. If your mother dies out of the blue (laughs) on a snowy night in January when you're 5 and 10, what else can't you handle? Yeah, it's true, right? Like, is there anything you can't handle? However, I think that I think about death as a result of that a lot more than anyone else does. And I think about tragedy and I think about my own mortality in that sense. Like, I'll be driving home from work and think to myself, yep, like my everything could just end right now, which I'm not sure that other people think about on a regular basis because it is pretty regular. I think about, like, what happens if something – and Andrew's a police officer, but I think what happens if something happens to him often. Like, what would I do? How would I rebuild my life? And maybe everyone thinks that way. I don't know. But I think that since the accident happened, I've thought about that scenario many times, featuring lots of different people who would just all of a sudden be ripped out of my life. I live knowing you really never know what's coming. And I don't think that they're – like, I don't think about it as if they're unhealthy thoughts yeah, no, or behavior, me. like, as a whole. I think there's been some periods in my life where maybe they have been unhealthy. But when I think about it as a whole since the accident happened, I think that they've made me a lot more insightful, maybe a lot more aware of my place in the world and my purpose and what I want my legacy to be than they probably ever would have had we not endured that tragedy. The great irony in all of this is that everything my sister's talking about, her value of relationships and connection, her ability to find meaning in her life, her insight into the space she takes in this world and how she's carved out her place in the universe, all of these things are things that my mom would have wanted to cultivate in us. In many ways, we have become the people our mother would have wanted us to become because she died. And I find that strangely comforting. Do you have any memorable experiences where, like spiritual experiences where you know that she was there or you could really feel her presence? Many. I have this book actually where I write them down. I think I was more attuned to the the mess. I don't say messages. It sounds (laughs) hokey, but and signs is even worse. But I guess that that her um, that her spirit was around me so like I went through this period as I said right before I decided to have kids where I I would almost call I don't want to like self-diagnose but I was kind of like in a depressive state I would say I didn't want to eat I like the things that I normally found lots of joy and pleasure in. I didn't I felt kind of sick often it lasted from probably about like three or four weeks And it was really weird because it just came on all of a sudden and I started, it was almost like a panic of like, what happens? What happened to her? Where is she actually? It happened one time again after I had my second son. But at that point, it was me, I think, fearing 
that what happened to my mother would happen to me, that I could just get sucked off the planet or sucked out of my life all of a sudden. And that was terrifying because I love my kids so much and I wanted to see them do all of these things. And, and I think at the same time, I was terrified about how fast life goes. So during this whole thing, I just soaked in a whole bunch of information and I had to try to reestablish what I thought I believed. And I came out on the other side thinking that there's much more probability in my head that all of the crazy, amazing, miraculous wonders of the world have some kind of rhyme and reason than they just all suddenly appeared because of a whatever, <laughs> like small scientific thing. And then I also came out thinking that I feel like it'll be discovered someday, just like how people used to think that the earth was flat. Okay, for the record, there is an astonishingly large group of people who somehow still believe that the Earth is flat. Not exactly my preferred conspiracy theory, but I did want to offer a little bit of woo-woo insight on the issue of energy and what happens when we die. So our cells are full of energy, and we also know, based on science, that energy can never be created and can never be destroyed. That's just basic physics, I think. Swear to God, I'm a doctor, guys. But if all of our cells are made up of energy and energy can never be created or destroyed, then when we die, where does that energy go? Does it just go into the ground, into the earth? Maybe. Or is it possible that it leaves the body and that our consciousness, which is arguably also energy, leaves the body when we die and goes somewhere else, somewhere that we in this realm can occasionally tap into. I know I felt it before, and certainly it helps me go on believing that, so I'm going to stick with it. But just kind of that thing, like when we talk about other planes of existence, other, you know, some people say like mediums or, and of course there's some crazies out there, but I think that there are some people who truly are gifted and they just say that, we're all existing all at the same time, that there's just different planes of existence almost. And so I just kind of hover in that belief. I've had experiences like that as well. I had one, <laughs> she and Poppy Daly were like, I think we were in a McDonald's. I have it written down in that book. Like I honestly record all of those dreams and experiences I have because they're so easy to forget. And she was so vibrant, like the, and as a same, I don't dream about her at all. Like I can probably count on one hand, the number of times I've dreamt about her. And she was just so vibrant and so bright. She was wearing jewelry and she was trying to buy a coat for my kid, which is just like exactly what I can picture her trying to do. And I woke up feeling great. Like I woke up feeling like revitalized Full. and good and yeah. I just think that there's so many amazing, awe-inspiring moments that I'm lucky to have and live that it can't be by accident. It can't be by accident. Yes, it was an accident. But if you consider all of the seemingly insignificant things that led to that one instant in time, the instant where her car collided with another, there were so many discrete moments that all aligned to that single split second of impact. 
you could probably go back and consider every minute of her life and every minute of my life and my sister's life and every minute of everyone's life who ever interacted with her and culminate it to that specific moment in time. It can't be by accident. For the stars to align in just the right way for something so life-altering to happen. It's kind of like the movie The Butterfly Effect, the 2004 thriller with Ashton Kutcher where he goes back in time and alters his past little by little, only to find that it changes his future drastically. The term butterfly effect is linked to chaos theory, and I won't pretend to understand the complexity of it, but what I do understand is that It's this idea that small changes in one state can have huge impact in a future state, and it suggests that nothing is random, that the future of dynamic systems like life is determined by slight changes to initial conditions. And if you think about it too much, you can go crazy, or you can be like me, And just trust that there is meaning hidden away in our tragedy. And the moments that follow, those beautiful, awe-inspiring moments that my sister talks about, the moments where light shines through the cracks of the hard stuff, a bright double rainbow shining through the clouds the night before her wedding, so vibrant that everyone who saw it knew on a deeper level that it was a sign for my mother. The moments of connection with something beyond our physical world that are healing and tranquil. Those moments are part of the meaning, too. I guess once again to where we started with like, what do do you remember from your mom? And so I remember thinking to myself, so even if there is nothing, she has still left behind this amazing just amazing memories and she was an amazing person that everybody remembers so she did leave a legacy behind and so i just guess that as a result of that i hope to live every day that i to bring enough goodness and kindness to the world that even if there's nothing beyond this that i remembered in that way Mm -hmm. i feel like there's a lot of hope that can come from death if that makes any sense without the death of our mother i guess that I don't know if I would have as deeply considered what comes after. And I don't think that I would have the hope that I do for what the real purpose of life actually is had she not been taken from us. And I think that I also realized from her death how the number one most important thing that we can do as people is to form relationships, to love, to be kind, because that's what she left behind for all of us. And that's what I see when I go places, when people talk about her, when they think about her, when they comment on social media about her, you know, when we post things that that's what she left behind was kindness and love and so if all the rest of it is just bogus and baloney or if that's what you believe still we can all love we can all be kind and we can all leave that legacy behind it's our relationships that matter the most and i think that i that's not something that i would have considered as deeply or hold on to so strongly had it not been for 
losing her. That's it for part two of the first episode of Talk Dying to Me. Huge thank you to my sister, Alyssa, for sitting down and letting me record this highly emotional conversation. Also, big shout out to Josh Denny Keys, who composed some of the music in this episode. Josh is the music therapist at St. Paul's Hospital and one of the most essential members of our team. Thank you to Wiki Turton for creating our awesome cover art, to my dear friend Nina Blagojevich and my partner Riley Beckler for vetting this episode, and of course, thank you to Resonate Recording for doing all of the post-production work. For more episodes of Talk Dying to Me, you can check out our website, talkdyingtome.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining, and I can't wait to see you next time. Music